what we're going to do uh, this morning is we're going to sum up everything that we've said together over these last few weeks, um, as Kate's just said, about the beginning stories of Genesis. We've discovered a lot about those beginning stories of Genesis, and I've got some principles that we're going to build out of them. But um, before we start, I've known Ollie for years and years and years, and I've spoken at endless things that Ollie has painted in. And is he not a brilliant artist? Do you not think? Yeah. Give him a round of applause. (laughs) So um, so, uh, what Ollie's doing is just uh, creating some artwork around the principles that we've, um, the stories we've told and the principles that we've, um, we've, unearthed, if you like, over these last um, few weeks together. I wonder whether you could switch across to my uh, laptop, Warwick. That'd be uh, wonderful if you could. Um, So um, before we get going, I just wanted to give uh, to you the chance to ask questions because what we've done over these last few weeks is we looked at that phrase um, in verse 3 of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, let there be light. And what we've explored is the fact that there very often isn't much light around the first chapters of Genesis. And in actual fact, they've been used wrongly uh, it to, to, well, they've been used wrongly to create barriers for people's faith and belief that should have never been there. For instance, Genesis chapter 1, was the world created in six days flat, six 24-hour periods? And you found Christians who've believed that and clung to that because they feel that if we give up that the world was made in six days, 24 hours flat, somehow we're denying even the first page of the Bible without really understanding that that was never what it was meant for at all. And we discovered that this first chapter was a poem. It was a piece of liturgy. It was used in worship. The people said, the priests said one bit and the people had a return um, at, It was just as happens in many Anglican churches today. That's how it was used. And so we've learned over the course of these weeks that these first stories, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, aren't history at all. They're great stories that give us a real good map for life and on which the history of Abraham and everyone who comes after him is built. I... I uh, was riding on the um, tube uh, years ago now, and, uh, and um, I sat opposite uh, this guy. And um, it was quite interesting because, you know, as you sit opposite each other on the tube, you look at the person uh, on the opposite side and you wonder what they're doing. And this businessman is dressed up. And, uh, at, but as we rattle through the tube stations, I can't remember which line it was, he looks more and more lost. And he's got one of those diaries. You know those diaries you get and used to get with the tube map in the front? And um, he's looking at the tube map. And every time we pulled into um, a station, he'd gaze out the window at the name of the tube station, look at it like that, and then he'd look back down at his map, and it was clear that he couldn't find where he was on the map. So he'd twist the map round and he'd scratch his head and he'd look more closely and he'd scrutinise the map a bit more. And then the train would pull out and it was like he gave up. 
And then we'd pull into the next station and he'd look at the next station's name, the sign up there, and he'd repeat the process. He'd look down anxious and he'd look down excited that he might know this time where he was and he'd turn the map round this way and that way and he'd scratch his head and shake his head and give up. And in the end, even though I'm kind of British and reserved and all of those things, I realised that what I should do is move across and sit next to him. So I moved across and I sat next to him and I asked him if he was lost, which was a daft thing to do because it was clear that he was. But what happened as he responded to the question was simply this. I learned a lot. I learned that he was German. Uh, I could tell uh, from his accent and then I asked him uh, about where he was from and he was just visiting the country and he didn't know London and uh, he, um, he admitted to me he was completely lost on the tube but he had to get to a business meeting. So I said, well don't worry, look I'll show you where we are on the map. So I took his diary and I looked at the map with all the colours on and I couldn't work it out and then we poured into a tube station it was before I lived uh, permanently in London and I looked at the and I didn't know the tube that well myself and I looked up at the station and then I looked down at his map and I couldn't find the station so I turned it round and I twisted it and I scratched my head and I had no idea and I said to him I'm sorry I can't find where we are on this map and then I shut the diary and as I shut the diary I realised what the problem was the diary was French. It was a map of the Paris Metro. When you're on the London Tube and all you've got is a map of the Paris Metro to get you there, you're going to get lost. That's what the first chapters of Genesis are written for. They are not history. Adam and Eve didn't walk in a garden with a talking snake and a fruit that was pulled off a tree. Um, as we learned the other week... Noah never got in a boat with every kind of animal on earth, including northern white rhinos and southern white rhinos, etc., etc. Uh, he didn't do that. It's impossible. He couldn't have fitted them in, of course. He would have never collected them from around the world. And even if he had, half of them would have killed each other and the other one half would have killed him before he got off the boat. These stories were never meant to be taken seriously as history, but as we discovered, they are far more serious than that. And as we said a couple of weeks ago in this context, it's like when you read the book Animal Farm. The book Animal Farm uh, is a fantastic book with great truths in Unless you actually think that a pig called Napoleon took over a farm called Manor Farm. At the moment you begin to take it literally, you lose the depth and gravity of what the story is saying to you. And that these stories uh, were that. Now, I'm uh, talking and you're not talking. So, uh, those of you who've been around over, over these last few weeks, is there anybody who'd like to, you know, so we've been talking about where these stories come from. Um, uh, any, is, has anybody got a burning question they want to ask of me? And you thought, all these weeks I've been sitting here and you've been saying this stuff and it, I, I like it, but it doesn't add up for this reason or that reason. Has anybody got a burning question they've been thinking about that they'd like to ask? Or shall I just head on? Hmm? Oh, yeah, you could... You could uh, um, well, I... You're all looking at me like you just like me to talk. 
you know, so, <laughs> so yeah. Why has it taken us so long for us to get to this point? Actually, I think that is a brilliant question, and I think it's a combination of two things. I think it's a combination of the fact that theology and our understanding of the Bible is always developing. So, when uh, uh, Martin Luther wrote 500 years ago at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, or John Calvin, or Augustine a long time before that, or um, Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s, or any of those great theologians, they were all great theologians, when they wrote, they just didn't have the tools that we've got at our, our, as a resource today. So if you've uh, been here in these last few weeks, in the 1800s, 1850s, we dug up in Mosul, in Nineveh, Mosul uh, in Iraq is the great capital city of Nineveh, the Assyrian capital. And from the king's library, the royal library, we dug up... 20,000 different tablets. Libraries in those days didn't have books. They just had uh, clay tablets. And we've seen some of them. We've shown you shots of them. All 20,000 plus are now in the British Museum. So you don't need to go far to get them. And these were histories of the world. And they were stories of the world. And they were ancient creation stories. And there's several flood stories. And so what we've been able to do since 1850 is first of all grapple with this new language which is called Akkadian and it took a long time for experts to decipher Akkadian and then for them to translate those stories into English and that's when we discovered there were lots of flood stories that the the world knew and it's when we discovered that the story of Adam and Eve and the story of the six days of creation is a rip-off, if you like, a subversion is a better way of saying it, of ancient stories that existed. And we learned that the values of ancient Assyria and Mesopotamia were contained in these stories just like the values of our society are contained in Animal Farm and other books. We learned all of that. But that So as we learned all of that, we were learning new things. So the clear fact is that we in our generation have theological tools to apply to our understanding of the Bible that people in previous generations didn't have. And guess what? When they continue on their archaeological digs and they find new evidence and more uh, uh, more evidence and our translation gets better, we'll have even greater insights. So the insights that I hope I've brought through these, these weeks to you, they're not the only ones. Honestly, they're not the only ones that my talks would have been far too long if I'd gone through every verse and what we can learn from it. But even if I'd been able to unpack to you everything I understand about these stories, still we're caught in time. And in 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years' time, we'll have greater depth and greater understanding. The second reason we've not been taught this stuff is laziness. It's just sheer darn laziness on the part of people who teach the Bible. Because you can know if you do study, but people don't study and they just stand up. And uh, they talk from a position of not doing the grappling work, rather than um, uh, working at that hard. So here's, um, well, you can hardly see it there. Um, That's a piece of jigsaw. And... um, You see, just to go back to my story of the map, if you're on the tube, you need the right map. Without the right map, you're going to get lost. If you're living life, you need the right map. Without the right map, you're going to get lost. 
So what these 11 uh, chapters of Genesis and the story of creation and Adam and Eve and the snake and the apple, which wasn't an apple, it was more like a pomegranate or a fig because apples don't grow in Mesopotamia. Still in Mesopotamia, there are no apples, so it couldn't have been an apple. Um, And then the story of Cain and Abel and the first act of worship and the first murder and the flood and Noah and his sons and then the nations and then this Tower of Babel story All of these stories are are deep, wonderful parables to teach great truths that create, together, each piece of this jigsaw creates the picture with the values and the principles for life that then the history of the Bible is built on. And Mark read to us from Genesis chapter 12, which is the beginning of history. The beginning of history. It's the beginning of the story of history that the Bible tells. And there's this man called Abraham who leaves uh, his father and his, and his father's household and the city of Ur where he is born, which is right in the heart of this great superpower em- empire, Babylonia. And he leaves all that behind with the stories of his childhood, the legends and the parables, the stuff that he's been taught as a kid. And he goes on this journey to find the one God of the whole universe. And he carries the stories with him. And he tells the stories. But he subverts the stories. And he twists the stories. And the people who go with him twist the stories. And they twist the stories to tell a better story. So, the thing I want to say first of all is this. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell us this. That the truth, they were telling the original audience who read these, these stories on the front of the history. They were telling them, the truth is better than you've been told it is. The truth is better than you thought it was. And the truth, the truth is more joyous than you ever hoped for. Because people grew up in a world, a bit like we still do, where they think God's against most people and definitely against me. That God, uh, God is exclusive. God's for a certain kind of people. He just doesn't approve of most people in most parts of the earth. And God is angry and the gods were angry. And the 11 chapters of Genesis are told to refute that false story that was running through. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up on some of the principles that we learned. Uh, This is kind of a recap, and then it ends in a new place. So, Genesis chapter 1, the story of the six days of creation, its main point is there's one God of everyone and everything, or everything and everyone. Remember the Babylonian creation story, the big one that Genesis 1 is written to subvert. You can read the Babylonian creation story online. Please don't do it now, right? But you can read it online later. It's called Enuma Elish because that's the first words with which it begins, when on high. Uh, The Babylonian creation story was the story that Abraham grew up with and knew. It was known across uh, Babylon, but it was the superpower, but it was the story of warring gods who hated one another. They went to war with each other. They fought within families. And Marduk, the god of Babylon, murders his mother who was called Tiamat. And Tiamat, he slits her down the middle. He pulls her apart. And in pulling her apart, in this act of, of... 
of violence against women, a woman, and this act of violence amongst the gods. As he pulls her apart, he splays her open, and she becomes the heavens and the earth. And that is creation. Made by mistake, made out of an act of warfare, made incidentally. And then Marduk looks at everything that's made, and he's got this, this, you know, this um, heavens and earth, the innards of his dead mother who he hates. And uh, his siblings, because he's made, because he's put an end to his mother, his siblings make him the king of the earth, which is why Babylon is the superpower. And, and then his sibling, siblings say to him, well, we need slaves to run this thing. We've created this thing by mistake. We need slaves. Yeah, says Marduk, let's make people. And I'll put the king of Babylon in charge and those people will do our bidding. And Genesis chapter 1 says this, there is only one God and the one God who we worship is the God of everyone and everything without rival. The next principle that leaps out, it actually leaps out of Genesis chapter 1, if you've read the Babylonian creation story, is that the one God of everything and everyone is good. Creation's intentional. It's not a mistake. Creation is beautiful. It's no mistake. We are here on purpose. Your life is on purpose. Rose is not some accident. She is here on purpose, given the gift of life by a gracious God who is the God of everyone and everything. The next principle we learn is that creation itself is a gift of intentionality and goodness. It's not the byproduct of some gods fighting, as the Babylonians believe. Creation is good and intentional and to be celebrated by us all. We're to walk through life with a smile on our face because of the joy of being alive. This is a map worth living by. It's the map that gets us to the right place. We learn from Genesis 1, and you see, you begin to get, well, you begin to get onto stuff that's still not believed by half the people in the world today. We are all inherently good. God creates men and women in his image. Remember, in the Babylonian story, it's only the king that's created in the image of Marduk, and that's only so he can control all the plebs. But Genesis 1 says... God created them, male and female, all of us, made in his image. And then he said, it says, and then was morning and evening, a sixth day, and God said, it is very good, not it's bad. The Bible begins with original goodness, not original sin. This cursed thing that's hung over people that teaches them they're not quite up to the mark, that they've not quite made it, that God's not quite on their side, that we should be shameful because of who we are, is alien to the Bible's very first story. Rejoice! You're made in God's image. You are inherently good. We are all made in the Imago Dei. We learned that term. It means an image of God. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, they were created. We're in God's image. We're in God's image. It's like we're stamped with God's seal. Each one of us is made in the image of God. Now, God is not a human being with a physical body. God is spirit. 
So whatever being made in the image of God means, and it means a lot of things, and I won't bore you with all that, one thing it does mean is you are spiritual. The guys outside who've never been inside a church building are spiritual. Everybody on the tube is spiritual. We are spiritual. And beyond our physical needs, our emotional and our spiritual needs are the deepest needs we have. And we can live in denial of those for years, for decades. But in the end, our needs are for our inner self. Who are we? What are we here for? What's life about? The spiritual questions can never, in the end, be denied. Maslow's hierarchy, if you know about it, at the bottom, you know, food and water and sustenance, etc., etc., and you work your way uh, uh, through, and at the top of that triangle, you, you self-actualization, does, do you remember self-actualization? Well, Maslow, Abraham Maslow, lived on, and uh, that's the fifth level of his thing, when you self-actualized, Uh, But in his last years, you read all about this, he said himself, no, there's a sixth level that gives meaning to everything else. It's to answer the questions of a spiritual longing and hungering which is within us all. And that's what Genesis says. You're in the image of God. You're spiritual. We're all spiritual. Sometimes people say to me, I'm not very spiritual. I'm not spiritual. I say, bad luck, too late. You're a human being. Sometimes... Christians will say about someone else, oh, she's not very spiritual, or she's not spiritual. You've not read Genesis chapter 1. We are all spiritual and physical in our nature. We are all God's representatives. So, here's the thing. It's not just the king who's in God's image, as in the story of Babylon. Everyone. So here's the thing. This is an amazing thing for you this week, for me this week. Tomorrow morning... You are God's representative. Wherever you are, you know, in the office or wherever it is, on the bus, on the tube, you actually are, according to the Bible, God's representative. So how you behave, whether you smile or bark at someone, how we respond, whether we're generous or not, we are God's representatives. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's all in the first, those were all principles from the, um, from the first chapter. We're all responsible for the care of creation. That's the first principle that leaps out of Genesis chapter 2, the Adam and Eve story. Remember, Adam just means man from the dust, and Eve means first woman, not names at all. Um, But uh, moving on, we are all morally responsible for ourselves. That's the point. Eve is seduced by a serpent. Serpents in the... um, in, in uh, the, the Babylonian story and the Babylonian stories that we've recovered, serpents had godlike tendencies. Do you know they, 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 they were gods? And uh, this serpent comes along, talking snake, walking, talking snake at the time, and uh, it tempts Eve to take the fruit from the tree. And what the story is saying to us isn't that because Eve did this, we're all cursed, so wake up every morning because bad luck, Eve took the fruit from the tree, so the whole of humanity is cursed. Never says that. It's not in the story. It ain't there in the words. What it's saying is we all get seduced by the snake, one way or the other. It might be love of image. It might be love of money. 
It might be, it might be any in, inner craving that seduces us, but we're all tempted to grab the fruit that we know will do us no good. We have freedom. We have agency. This whole thing that God's planned everything and every move we make, he's planned, you know, someone, you know, these terrible things you hear. Someone was killed um, last year. Um, I got a good friend and her friend was killed on a bike outside King's Hospital. And I heard a Christian say, well, it was God's timing. It was what God wanted. No, it wasn't. It was it was the fact that our city is overcrowded. It's the fact that we need to think again about traffic regulation. It's the fact that we need to make this place safe. Because that woman who was killed robbed two children of their mother. It's an outrage. It's an absolute outrage. We are morally responsible. And we have freedom of choice. That's what Genesis chapter 2 is saying. But it says this, when Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree and made the wrong choice, they're banished from the garden. And it's a symbolic way of saying every moral choice you make has consequences. Every moral choice. When a man decides to cheat on his wife just for a night, that has moral consequences. When you meet someone and you think, we just have a casual relationship because it won't hurt me. That is a moral choice with moral consequences in your life and in that life of the other person. When you decide to hide that your true income from the tax man, it has moral consequences. Even if we get away with lying to the whole world, we cannot escape lying to ourselves. There are moral consequences. And that's what Genesis 2 is saying. When we listen to the snake in our lives, there are always, there's always a banishing. There's always a moral consequence. But it's not the end of the principle. So if you're thinking, well, I've made some big mistakes. We've all made big mistakes. So this isn't condemning. It's just setting out principles. And the stories build on one another. Here's the other one that comes from Adam and Eve. Life's central quest is for morality rather than immortality. The stories that Genesis chapter 2 pulls into itself, remember, were all about the tree of life and living forever. Because in all the ancient stories, there was a, a, there's an ancient, old ancient story called the city of God and the garden of God, another one. And there was this tree of life and you got the, you got the fruit of the tree of life so you could live forever. In the flood story that's in the Epic of Gilgamesh that we talked about the other week, I won't bore you with that, but you can find out about it by listening to the podcast of that. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, that it's all about surviving the flood so you can get eternal life and live forever. But in the Genesis 2 story, the tree of life is there and everyone ignores it. Instead, the tree that's introduced for the first time is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all have knowledge of good and evil. And I know when I am pursuing what I shouldn't. I know. I know. And Genesis is simply saying, Steve, when you choose to take the fruit because it looks luscious, there's a consequence of that seduction that you give yourself into.
Life before death, rather than life after death, is the chief teaching of the Bible, what it's about. The key principle, moving on to the story of um, Cain and Abel, is the key principle of the Bible is justice, not just us. It's justice for everyone, not just us. And the other principle that leaps out of that story of Cain and Abel is simply this. Um, Cain and Abel, they both set out to worship God, and it ends up with Cain murdering his brother. The first act of worship ever recorded in the Bible turns out to be the first act of violent murder. And the message is that even worship can be subverted. You know that, don't you? People stand up and sing songs and wave their hands in the air and say all sorts of spiritual stuff whilst living a life in direct contrast to what they're talking about. And these first stories, they're just saying, live authentically. Whatever you do, live authentically. Because if you don't live authentically, you will inherit the consequences of taking the fruit and being chased from the garden that you choose to live in. Then we come on to Noah and the ark. And the, the funny thing about the story, besides the fact that we learned that there were no worldwide floods ever, and we can tell that from the archaeological record, but there were floods in Mesopotamia, which was low-lying flat land, but there was never a flood in Palestine, which was hilly and dry and rocky. Besides knowing all of that, so no one's ever going to dig up Noah's ark, you know, it just ain't going to happen, though those daft media stories go round. Um, it was always a story, but what we learn, if you read it again, is it's a very extraordinary kind of flood as well, because it doesn't just say it rained, you know, when we tell it to kids, we say it rained for 40 days, it's not what the Bible says, we just made that bit up, because, well, we don't read it so well, it says that the that fountains from underneath the earth welled up, and the waters underneath the earth burst out and the floods from above the earth came down and we remembered back to Genesis 1 where it says that there Genesis 1 right at the start it says there were waters above the earth and waters beneath and God parted the waters that were above and the waters were beneath that was the chaos water was chaos um, being un inundated, not being able to breathe, not being able to live. And the waters were parted, says Genesis 1, and earth, the universe, was created on purpose. And in the story of Noah, it tells you about humanity betraying humanity, turning its back on God, not listening to its inner voice, being seduced. And then this story comes about the waters beneath the earth and the waters above the earth begin to crush in again. Because injustice undoes creation. That's the message. All injustice undoes creation. And all you've got to do is listen to the news on any day this last week or the week before or tomorrow. To, is, do you not find it overwhelming sometimes when you read story after story and you realize that Injustice presses in on creation and undoes it. So in the story of Noah and the ark, the waters beneath and the waters above that God had divided to make creation, the story tells us that they're crushing in again. They're crushing in again. And that's the big distinctive with the story of um, Gilgamesh. Because in the Gilgamesh uh, and all the other 
stories of the flood. There are tens of them that with different heroes and that. It's all about finding the key to eternal life every time. Whereas in this story, it's not about eternal life. It's not about immortality, like I just said. It's about morality. And the message to me this week is the way I live makes a difference. And when I choose injustice and betrayal of others, and when I think of just me and not justice, the waters of chaos begin to close in again. That's what the story of Noah is saying. And then it ends beautifully, doesn't it? You know, with the rainbow in the sky and uh, this promise from God. And you probably remember, those of you who here, we said that the rainbow was a bow. And in all the Babylonian stories and Assyrian stories uh, that we have on all those tablets, the bow is the weapon of the gods against the people on earth who they hate and despise and aren't made in their image. The gods... The gods have no time for, for plebs and humanity. And the bow in the sky is a sign of the vengeance of the gods on us who are just dirt. And the story of Noah rewrites it and says, the bow in the sky is God's promise of God's grace. An extraordinary thing. And then we come to the story we dealt with last week about the Tower of Babel. And we said Babel is this funny play on words that you only get if you can speak Akkadian, really, which none of us can. Um, So Babel is a play by rearranging the letters in the word Babylon, the great superpower, with its great... It had this great temple called a Gujarat, and uh, uh, a ziggurat. And and the ziggurat was this man-made mountain with the gods at the top, you can still go visit the, um, the, the outlines of it in, in Babylon, uh, Babylon today um, in, at the site there on the, uh, uh, on the um, edge of the river Euphrates. It's still there. This tower, this man-made mountain that they built uh, to God. Babylon was the, was the capital city of the superpower. It had the best technology there was going. And this joking story would have made everybody laugh in the, in the Bible as they read it, that Babylon had become Babylon. It's Babel. We keep the word Babel in our language, I said. Now, it just mean, it means meaningless, pointless chatter about nothing. And what the Bible is saying that all of this man-made mountain and all of these gods and all of this religious hierarchy and who's in and who's out and the king and the priests are more important than everyone else and people are prading around in pompous robes and uh, displaying their wealth and claiming that that somehow impressed God is nothing. What the Bible is saying, it's a pile of meaningless babble. What matters are these other principles. So there's a new principle, get out of this, and then it's time to move on with a question for you. Truth must be encultured for everyone. This is a very profound thing. All these stories in the first chapters of Genesis to chapter 11 aren't history. They are teaching deep principles. But each time what happens is the writers get hold of a story in the culture retell the story so it's familiar and then subvert it to make their point. I believe that we've got to learn to do that again. When we wander around telling people about shepherds, they live 
in an urban cosmopolitan city. We need new metaphors, new ways of talking about our faith that actually make sense and connect. It's an ambitious project and it's a challenging project. But unless we find new ways of telling ancient truths, the truth gets lost. And that's what happens in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The whole Bible starts with this fantastic display of how to speak into culture in a culture's own terms and language so that it can respond to it meaningfully. I think we did a little bit of that together. Do you know that video that we made, um, and some of it we recorded twice, actually, after two Sunday services, around sexuality and the New Testament? We recorded it in here, and then we realized the pictures weren't good enough, so we recorded it up there, and some of you even came twice. Do you know we launched that? I write about this on the front of the news sheet. We launched that a week ago, and as of last night, it had been watched by 61,000 people. That's incredible. I mean, it took, Nathan recorded it and Dan and edited it up and I prattled on and some of you came. 61,000 people as of last night and it's being added to at the moment by about 10,000 people a day watching it all the way through. But of course, what we did is we took the story of Pompeii, do you remember? And what's happened in Pompeii. So we used a new metaphor that connects with people to make an ancient point. That's what the church has got to do. I'm not holding that up as some example of that, but simply say, look, you're all creative. Do you know, I know loads of you. You work in all sorts of areas in life where you're thinking all the time. You've got PhDs and degrees and you deal with story and metaphor and you build websites and you write for newspapers and magazines and I know you do lots of other things that I've not mentioned and we're in caring professions. There are so many people here in this auditorium this morning you know I guess I know more people than most but you are just wonderful people truly you are you're creative extraordinary people I'm looking at Chris there's a jazz musician and a writer you know etc the list goes on and on and John who's down here said it was a ballet dancer and is artistic etc etc we are you are extraordinary but our job is to take the stories that we know of our culture and to retell deep ancient truths in a way that connects with everyone and gives them some hope. And that's our bit, because we are part in this jigsaw. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis don't say, well, that's it, that's done. What they say is, in the 12th chapter, there was a man called Abraham, and the Lord said to him, go from your country and your people and your father's household, and all these old myths... Remember, he grew up in Ur and Babylon. Leave behind all these old myths about lots of warring, fighting gods who don't love people and not only the king being made in the God's image and all of that kind of stuff and morality not matter, mattering. Leave behind all this and head for the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless all those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. And there's that little difficult bit in there. It says, I will bless everyone for you. But whoever curses you, I will curse. And what that's saying is this. We have to bring a good news story. This, this um, video that's gone out and been watched all these thousands and thousands and thousands of times this week, I cannot tell you how many, 
Hundreds of people have written to me to say that I'm going to hell, that I'm going to burn, I'm apostate, I'm going to die, my family are going to die, we're going to be wiped off the face of the planet, etc. I mean, you know, it's tons of it on social media. I mean, actually, bucket loads, you know, but it always goes on anyway. It's just got extra hot over the last little while. It's kind of sweet to read it or something, you know, kind of like. So basically, if you're going to stand up for justice, rather than just you, you're going to get it in the neck. It's not going to be easy. When they crucified Jesus, you know, some people often say, don't they, I've heard this said, oh, you know, Jesus, well, he was wonderful, but, you know, he only taught what everybody else believed. His beliefs were kind of common. You know, they're common to everyone. Why did they crucify him? If everyone said, oh, Jesus, yeah, we've always believed all that anyway. You know, it just fits with what we had, what we believe. Why on earth did they crucify him? And who crucified him? All the people in power. The powers that be will always hang on to privilege as long as they possibly can. But we're here to tell a story that brings blessing to everyone. So the question is, what's the part of this emerging picture of justice and good news, the good news of God expressed through the life of Jesus in a way it was never before. Jesus is the whole picture of God's grace and truth, the Bible teaches. But what's our part in the ongoing story? And what's your part in the ongoing story? Because if you don't play your part, there'll always be a piece of the jigsaw puzzle missing for some people. Your friends, your relatives, your workmates, they need a map of the tube, not the Paris metro. They need a map of life that's reliable. And I put it to you that you have a part to play in that. Whether you're a mum or a dad, and we're talking about your children, whether you're an aunt or an uncle, whether you're a friend or a neighbour or a work colleague, as we play our part in society, we all have something extraordinary to bring. The one question that the 11 chapters of Genesis that we've dealt with never answer, there is one question they never answer. Do you know what it is? A stonkingly huge one. Does God exist? They never answer that question. They just assume it. The first verse of chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God Because in the end, the map you choose to live by, the map I choose to live by, is in itself a statement of faith. This book, these stories assume that that the universe has meaning and purpose and isn't random. They assume, well, in in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century, actually, he he said this, when you see an arrow propelling itself through the sky, if an arrow's got momentum and propels itself, there must be an archer. You can't get an arrow without an archer. There must be a source of the energy that propelled the arrow. And Aquinas said that history is propelled by a God who is the source of all. I have chosen through my life to believe that the universe has meaning and purpose and it's not random. I don't know what your decision is, 
But if your decision is that these principles in these first 11 chapters of Genesis make sense and add up, then you, like me, are called to follow Abraham, who was asked to bring this good news to everyone. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for these incredible stories and the in-depth foundation that they bring for life. We thank you for the story of the people of Israel and the, and the work of Jesus and the work of every human being who will join this great mission to bring blessing to everyone starts in Genesis chapter 12, this great history of which we can be part and are called to play our part in. I pray that you'll bless each person here, that in their whole life they will know which piece of the jigsaw puzzle they play, which piece of the map they form for others. And I pray for each person here and for myself that as we address the spiritual questions in life, the deepest questions of who we are, you will guide us. We want to be a blessing to all peoples. We give ourselves to you through Jesus. Amen.